Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so happy and honored today to have as my guest Mark Tushnet, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School. Uh, Mark went to Harvard College and Yale Law School. He clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall. He's written literally dozens of books, uh, hundreds of articles. His newest book, The Huge Court from Progressivism to Pluralism, 1930-1941, is something we're going to talk about today. Mark is a former president of the WLS. And on a personal note, Mark was a mentor to me in the early 90s as my career started, and he has been an incredibly strong supporter of my career that I can never, in a way that I can never pay back. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Look forward to the conversation. So let's start with this, because most people think of you, I think still, as kind of one of the leaders of the original critical legal studies movement, a core legal realist, and everybody knows I'm, I self-identify that way as well, um, and the person who said, and I quote, law is politics all the way down, which I think is one of the most misunderstood famous legal lines of all time, but I'm curious what you think about that. What did you mean by that, and do you think it's been misunderstood over time? Um, I mean, it's not clear to me that it's been misunderstood. It's there. There's a, a bad understanding of it, which some people have. If mm-hmm. and if you want to sort of pursue it in bad faith, you take that understanding. So the bad understanding is that law is simply partisan politics translated right. into into the sort of well the domain of law. Uh, uh, and so legal arguments just are uh, uh, masks for uh, the kinds of partisan arguments that you would get in um, a legislature. Right. Um, now, I have to say that the recent behavior of the Supreme <laughs> Court um, is, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it's easy to, to uh, attribute that meaning of law is politics, meaning law is partisan politics, uh, to the current Supreme Court. Um, but I, and, and I don't think that would be wrong, actually. I think that um, in a book I published, um, I guess in 2020, I said that if the conservatives got a, a, a solid majority on the court, you'd get rules that took the form of saying things that, re- that help Republicans are either constitutionally required or constitutionally permissible, right. and things that help Democrats are constitutionally prohibited, um, and that sort of seems to be the way things work out. Have to work out, um, but uh, that's a my view a sort of temporary phenomenon and not characteristic of law in general. Right. So the better interpretation of law is politics all the way down, is that. Um, our political life is organized around a bunch of very deep assumptions about human nature, uh, the exercise of power, what power holders are likely to do, who influences power holders. And, and you know, we have, we have what we think are reasonably coherent sets of views about that. So, you know, if you think uh, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, you're going to be very suspicious about uh, uh, exercises of government power. Uh, You're going to think that people are 
in power just looking out for themselves and so on. Right. If you think that uh, uh, people are oriented to something like the common good or the public interest, you'll have a different set of assumptions. And those deep assumptions, they're, they're politics. Uh, and those deep assumptions get expressed in, in law, both public law and private law. That's the idea. Right. Yeah, politics is a bunch of deep assumptions about our social life. And law is one way that those uh, political assumptions get expressed. Um, Jeffrey Tubin said, I think, either at the beginning or the end of the nine, I forget, if it was the very first sentence or the last sentence, but he said that America gets the Supreme Court it deserves. And when I, and I reviewed that book for Journal of Legal Education, and I didn't like the book, I thought that sentiment at the time was somewhat accurate. I no longer think it's accurate, partly because of our changed politics. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, 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 again, I think it's complicated. Okay. Sort of most of the time, yes. Yeah. Uh, but most of the time it is accurate. Yeah. Uh, because most of the time there's a more or less, you know, coordinated set of right. institutions in our government as a whole. Everybody is sort of more or less on board with everybody else. It gets complicated in details, yeah. but uh, uh, but overall, you know, mostly political elites in our government um, share a bunch of ideas. But there are these moments of disjuncture where one or more of the institutions get out of out of misaligned. Right. With the others. Uh, or, which is, I think, what we are experiencing now, it's unclear what's going to happen, you know, down the line. Right. And so it looks like there's a misalignment. Uh, right now, you know, we sort of have Democrats in control of Congress. Uh, and we sort of are reasonably clear that the general public more or less favors the Democratic Party, but you have a Supreme Court that is firmly committed to conservative and mostly Republican policies. Now, that that's a disjunction. Um, uh, and in that sense, you know, we now don't have the Supreme Court we deserve. <laughs> but, you know, in five, in three years, right? maybe we will. Right. Uh, maybe, you know, Republicans will, for in a variety of ways, take over the other institutions. Maybe the Democrats will figure their way into getting control of the Supreme Court. And then there'd be the same, you know, conjunction of uh, alignment. One last question about this, and then we'll move on. Um, and this, of course, is a selfish question on my part, but... Um, so it's, it's been my view really for a long time, since the early 90s, that there is really only one constraint on the court, uh, real constraint, which is they know that they can't get away with everything. That there are some things they can't do. And certainly, I think we can infer Justice Roberts has made that calculation a few times in his head. Um, but, but even going back 100 years, the, the, the only limit is what will the people accept? What will the president and Congress accept? And no pre-existing theoretical commitment matters at all 
to the people and shouldn't matter if you have life tenure and you care about your an issue really hard and no one can fire you and you have the final say. It's how we all would act in that position. Do you think that's a fair description? Uh, with one qualification, yeah. yes. I mean, uh, you know, there are political scientists who sort of formally call this the strategic model. Yes. You have your own preferences. You know, they have their preferences. They can do some things to you uh, if you get too far out of line. And so, you know, you anticipate what they'll do and you, okay. Right. Um, that's straightforward. Uh, the, the qualification is uh, about what their preferences are. That is, uh, that is, you know, they come from a political elite. Uh, and so, you know, uh, none of them, to take an example I've used, uh, none of them thinks that the Constitution requires the adoption of democratic socialism. Right. Uh, and, you know, and they're refraining from doing that only because they think there'd be retaliation. Right. So it's within a range defined by, uh, by sort of elite legal thinking. Now, that range can be quite large. Right. Uh, but within that range, yes, they do what they think is right yeah. uh, from their point of view, subject to the concern about uh, retaliation in various right. ways. It, it really amazes me, Mark, how after the legal realists of the 1930s, you guys in the 1970s and 80s with critical legal studies, um, that idea you and I just expressed is really not accepted deep down by most law professors. Some now on the surface will accept it, but deep down, they really don't take it in. And I, I've i been frustrated about that for 20 years, 30 years. So I, I just on this point, this yeah. is sort of a personal point. Yeah. I, I have just submitted, and, and, and as law reviews open up, yeah. continue to submit through the sort of over the transom process. So they you know don't really know who it is. Right. Uh, a very short article called American Legal Realism Today, <laughs> uh, an idiosyncratic restatement. Um, and I don't want to, it's not a personal, uh, it's an observation of along the lines of what you're saying. Um, I've gotten a lot of very quick rejections. <laughs> uh, now, there are a lot of reasons. It may not be a great article. It's quite right. short. They're not used to this kind of writing. Uh, but I do also think that it's true that uh, law students aren't getting uh, um, a strong message right. about the legal realist perspective. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think what progressives are doing now mostly is complaining about how bad the court is as a right. policy political matter, but not really getting deeper into the, this is not that different. It's just you don't like what they're doing now. Than they've ever done before. All right. Um, right. Before we get to your book, you clerked for and wrote a book about Justice Thurgood Marshall, who I, I think is a very interesting, obviously, historical figure. For those who don't know, he argued Brown versus Board of Education when he was working for the NAACP. Can you tell us a couple of things about him that kind of peaked? I know you clerked for him, but in addition to that, that made you want to write that book and 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 some things about the man, because I, I really think he's an, he's an amazing historical figure. Yeah, so I have to start out by saying he was a great man. Okay. Uh, I worked for him, and yeah. my view of him is uh, affected by that experience. Sure. Now, I also always say that I was way too young to appreciate what it meant to work for Thurgood Marshall. 
Right. Uh, it's only in retrospect. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. I want to say clerkships are wasted on the young. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's only in retrospect that I sort of yeah. understood more about him. Uh, so uh, uh, because of the impending nomination of the first black woman to the Supreme Court, I've been getting calls sure. about, you know, what was it for Marshall to be the first black man nominated to the Supreme Court? And the, the thing that ha has struck me, that has come to my mind most uh, vividly is, uh, um, well, first of all, a line he used frequently, I think he may even have used it at his retirement press conference, that he never had to look at the back of his hand to know that he was an African-American. That was the way he referred right. to himself. Uh, because his entire life experience was of being an African-American man in a white society. Right. And everything that he did uh, was uh, shaped by that understanding. Um, uh, second, second thing is that um, he, what he cared about was how law affected ordinary people. Right. Uh, and, and it's striking that he was in many ways a very ordinary, although great, person. Uh, uh, he, he was outgoing, uh, funny, uh, profane. He would tell dirty <laughs> stories. Uh, um, so one of the, one of the uh, stories about him is that when he was working for the NAACP in New York, their offices were in Midtown. He lived in Harlem in a quite nice, uh, apartment building. He'd take the subway from Midtown to right. Harlem. And he'd get off the subway and walk from his, from the subway stop to his apartment. And pretty much along the way, every day, he talked to whoever was on the street. <laughs> the, you know, the, what, what were then called the bums, homeless people, right. um, shopkeepers, now they'd be bodega operators. He was just, you know, in that world. He was comfortable in that world. Uh, and he knew what life was like uh, for those people. Um, so uh, in just, you know, in in a, as law clerks, we uh, drafted opinions for him. And, and um, one of, actually the opinion I'm most proud of uh, contains a line derived from my interaction with him uh, about, um, that contains the phrase, Nobody who's familiar with the lives of poor people uh, would think what Justice Blackman wrote in his majority opinion. He understood right. what the lives of poor people were like. Yep. I, I was teaching uh, last week um, the abortion public funding cases and where the court said that there's no obligation, you know, Congress, the Hyde Amendment was constitutional and so on and so forth, um, prohibiting public funds for abortions. And his dissents in those cases say exactly that, basically. Say there's a, there's a, there, there's a, a side to America or, or a way people live here that this court refuses to see, refuses to understand. And what you're saying, I guess, is he, he saw that side all the time. And uh, I have to think that made him a much better judge, I would think, being in touch with him. Oh, in my view, yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, 
Well, it does affect what character. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Um, so, um, I, you've been interested in the Hughes Court, which we'll define as what nineteen thirty to forty-one, give or take. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Hughes was appointed in thirty and and left the court in forty-one. And I know you've been interested in this court for a long time because your book is just coming out, but. It was a long time ago. You were here as our esteemed Miller lecture, um, which we do every year, and and you gave a talk about the Hughes Court then, and that was I want to say ten years ago or more. Um, so what? So let's start with this. What about that block of time? What about Chief Justice Hughes? What about that court has made you so fascinating? Fascinated throughout your career. Well, I, I should say that uh, uh, I started working on this book in. 28, I think, wow. 2008, 2007, yeah. something yeah. like that. Uh, and I did it uh, because I was asked by this uh, actually federal body called the Oliver Wendell Holmes Devised Commission right. to write a volume on the Supreme Court. That's what they do. They ask right. people to write volumes. Right. And I sort of knew it was an interesting period. And, and I knew it was going to be a really massive job, but I just decided to do it. And then as I worked on it, it became more interesting. There are lots of things that I found out uh, that I hadn't known and, and, and I learned an enormous amount. You know, you know I, I knew a lot about the court, but I learned just a massive amount that I hadn't known. Um, so it's not that I was interested you know, right. in 2007 in the used court specifically, but you know, when you work on something for 15 years, yes. you know, it gets interesting. <laughs> okay, so uh, so the, the, it turns out that the most interesting thing is, for me, uh, is probably captured in the subtitle, From Progressivism to Pluralism. Right. Um, there's this notion rattling around in the legal academy, at least, uh, and among historians, that the court began as a conservative court, then there was this crisis in 1936-37, and then there was a constitutional revolution in 37, and everything changed dramatically after that. Right. I, when you look at the court over the entire period, I think it becomes clear that all of them, including the conservatives, had bought into the progressive theory of the modern state. Now, some had bought into it more than others, and sometimes some thought that the progressive state had gone too far. Uh, so at, at one point or another, all of them, even the most liberal, thought that the state had gone too far. Right. Cardozo dissented. Right. Uh, Cardozo went along right. with the uh, uh, decision in Schechter uh, uh, poultry saying that regulating um, the sale of uh, uh, chickens, retail sale of chickens, uh, went too far as a measure of uh, regulating commerce. Right. So even he. And Carter you know, Cole, too, I think. I think Carter Cole as well. He's half of it. I think. So I, I have to check again. I think. Carter and Carter Call is complicated because there are a couple of parts yeah. to it. Delegation the part. Captured on different parts. Yeah. Um, so I think he thought that, um, well, I, I won't go into it. It's, yeah. it's, I think he it's said delegation ran riot in Carter Call. Right. I think that was him. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, okay. So uh, 
and and uh, um, Sutherland and McReynolds, the uh, the first Justice Roberts, all of whom were more or less conservative, signed on to a fair number of the decisions expanding the administrative state. So that so so. <laughs> the court was, in some important ways, a progressive court throughout until towards the end, the New Deal did bring a change in politics, where you got sort of interest group politics coming to the surface. Uh, the New Deal coalition is something people could start thinking about. Right. Political scientists started writing about interest group politics, and that worked its way into the court's thinking towards the very end of the period. And so the story arc is one of, they started out as progressives thinking that the government was designed to and generally did pursue the public interest, and they ended up sort of beginning to think about the government as the location for interest group struggles where different groups sought to advance their own vision of what the public good was. Interesting. You know, most case books that I've looked at, um, I haven't looked at yours recently, but most case books don't tell that story. You know, most case books oversimplify this to the court was striking down a bunch of New Deal plans, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Roberts might or might not have changed his mind based on court packing, we don't know, uh, and then the court let everything go, and, and so that, that's the story I think most case books tell. And I guess that's yeah. way oversimplified is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I made a deliberate decision, and I talk about it this very briefly in the book, uh, to avoid the term Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh -huh. I actually, right. I think the only place I use it is when I say <laughs> I'm not using it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, because it is misleading. Yeah. Um, uh, now, of course, the court packing period was a period of very heightened political controversy over the court. Uh, and it's not surprising that in that political struggle, things got uh, characterized as nine old men, four horsemen, the apocalypse, that sort of stuff. Right. Um, but when you look at it in detail, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't, that turns out not to be the story. Even, actually, even in 36, 37. Um, uh, so one question about that, because I guess, I, I mean, to get from Schechter, which is, and, and Carter Cole, which are two cases where in the early 1930s, the court struck down, in one case, a minor New Deal program, in another case, a huge New Deal program. To get from there to the Wickard case and, and, and um, Darby, where the court basically says Congress can regulate anything effectively, um, that seems like a pretty big transition to me. I mean, there, there had to be a big change that happened from one to the other. Oh, yeah. And, and, and there are two things that... that happened. One, which is the sort of standard story, is that um, there's the, there's a switch in time, which I'll say something about in a moment. Yeah. Uh, and then there are a series of retirements from the court. Right. Uh, and that allows Roosevelt to appoint people on the basis of their commitment to expanded national power. Yes. Uh, that's all he cared about. They, yeah. Many of them turned out to be civil libertarians, but he didn't care about that. All right. he cared about was whether they would endorse New Deal type programs. Uh, and so they end up, you know, doing that. Yeah. But there's also a doctrinal uh, point to it, uh, which is that um, uh, for 
I so I, I focus on Schechter. I'll I'll tell the Carter story uh, in, a, in a moment. But so in Schechter, um, the government didn't do didn't do a terrible job, but it didn't do a great job of characterizing. Um, the nature of the power that Congress was exercising, or what what it was going after, um, when, when and, and and Hughes, who's a key figure here, saw saw the government's arguments. He said, "Well, if that's the argument, I don't see a connection to interstate commerce." Right. Then in Carter in Carter Cole. Justice Department lawyer named Robert Stern came up with it, a brilliant argument about what Congress was really doing and why it really was connected to uh, interstate commerce. And Hughes saw it, uh, and he actually uh, um, uh, he, he has this very complicated opinion in Carter versus Carter Cole, yeah. which I think is um, structured around his nervousness about the Stern argument, and then. When Jones and Laughlin comes up, and I'm sorry, Mark, just for the, the non-lawyers listening, and there are some non-lawyers listening. That's the case where the Supreme Court starts to turn. The Supreme Court begins to turn, right? And it upholds the National Labor Relations Act, which right. is you know the centerpiece, huge uh, of the New Deal uh, program. Uh, Hughes writes in this doctrinal point about what we're Congress was looking at a certain problem that no that undoubtedly had a connection to interstate commerce. Um, and, and, and so he was comfortable doctrinally with, with that. And then along comes, uh, well, then he has to deal with Carter versus Carter Cole, which he had sort of agreed with. And he writes this line, uh, Carter versus Carter Cole was decided on several bases. Uh, it is not controlling here. Right. <laughs> well, he said, right. uh, uh, that's a signal that, you know, he understood that he was doing something different from what he had done in Carter right. and Carter Cole. But I think it was because he figured out the legal argument uh, in a way that he hadn't figured it out when Carter and Carter Interesting. Cole was decided. And you think that, and you think, and that's what I find, I find a lot of things interesting about that. But one of the things that I find interesting is you think the doctrinal piece moved him more than the policy piece? Like a doctrinal thing really mattered? Uh, I think that, I think it's, I think it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. What I argue in the book is uh, sort, sort of, uh, is this, sort of Duncan Kennedy, a crit and yeah. a, friend of mine, yeah. uh, has this argument about legal reasoning in which he says um, the amount of what he calls work you do, that is doctrinal work, trying to figure things out, the amount of work you do is affected by the stakes of the problem that you're facing. Sure. And so probably um, Hughes was inclined to do the extra work right. because he understood that the stakes, not of the particular controversy, but the stakes for the court were so high. 
so there's this interaction between what's going on in the political domain and what Hughes, I think, sort of at his core cared about, which was getting the doctrine right. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so you want you once said to me, and and I, I remember making a special phone call to you about this. You won't remember because I was so confused about something. You wrote a very short symposia piece at some point on the dormant commerce clause, <laughs> and um, which I think you actually expressed some boredom in as you were writing it, kind of. But leaving that aside, uh, which I sympathize with. But one of the things you said in that piece was word formulations can make a difference because in rule formulations, because it can, it can make judges work harder and, and especially at the lower court level, but even at the Supreme Court, they have a limited amount of time, limited amount of resources, and they're only going to work so hard when they care so much. And I thought that was a fascinating, well, a lot of people thought that was inconsistent with what Critz had said. I never thought it was inconsistent with what Critz had said. Some people said that. But, 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 I, but I, I, can we generalize from the Hughes experience to kind of a general statement that where they care a lot, they will dig deeper into doctrine to justify what they're doing. Where they don't care, they'll just pay lip service to it and move on. Is that a fair characterization? Um, well, so uh, basically, yes, with one qualification. Okay. This is actually part of this little piece I put out for yeah. publication. Yeah. Uh, um, the qualification is that when, when they don't care, um, uh, a couple of things can happen. So, so they go into the case with what Kennedy calls a view of where I want to come out. Right. Uh, my view is uh, uh, where I'd like to come out if I can manage to do so. Right. It's a little different. Yeah. Um, and, and they work on it. And then, you know, time runs out. They don't care that much about it. And then they're, t and they haven't quite figured it out. Right. Okay. So, uh, or they, they can't figure out how to get to where they want to go. Right. Now, there are two things that can happen. One is that they can say, well, uh, this opinion going at getting to where I want to go, just as they put it, won't write. And so they will go with the result that they at some level disagree with because it's not worth taking the time and effort to figure out the additional stuff that right. would be needed. Or they sort of, jump over the barrier and say, well, yeah, I haven't quite worked this out, but I'm going to go where I want to go no matter what. Um, and I don't know, you know, it'd be interesting to try to figure out how often they do the first right, or the second. Right. So uh, there's a relatively well-known case in which Justice Kennedy, it's a basically a school prayer case, uh, court divides five to four. Kennedy's with the five. He's assigned the opinion. Um, he starts writing on it and circulates an opinion going the other way. So changing the result. Right. Um, and he circulates an the cover note says, you'll be surprised to see this, but the opinion that I was supposed to write just wouldn't write. Wouldn't write. Okay. So, okay. Now, there are a variety of things you can say about that, but uh, but there's a, it won't write. Um, there's a recent opinion by Justice Alito, uh, who's quite good at doctrinal analysis, where at one point he just, it's a copyright constitutionality uh, question. 
he lays out the argument for why the, the court's going to hold the restriction unconstitutional. He lays out the argument for why it's constitutional. It is constitutional. And says, um, uh, well, that argument involves money. <laughs> this involves a monetizable right. Um, and that's a difference. No, that's right. it. I mean, there's no difference right. between of course not. a monetizable legal right, right. and actual money. Right. Um, but, you know, it allowed, to say uh, saying that allowed him to get to the result that he wanted right. to get to. Yeah, I think equal state sovereignty in Shelby County versus Holder is a great example of Roberts having to get somewhere, needing a bizarre and completely unjustifiable concept to getting there and not caring at all that it was inconsistent with prior text, history, and case law. <laughs> um, sometimes they do that. Going back to the Hughes court. Um, so there's this big historical debate um, in that time period about whether Justice Owen Roberts, who is the person who is credited with the switch in time that saves nine, um, whether he knew about the court packing plan before or after he switched his vote. And I think, if I had this right, the debate comes because Felix Frankfurter claims to have discovered a memo written by Roberts conclusively proving he changed his vote before the court packing plan, but no one on earth has ever seen that memo. Do I have that right? <laughs> well, so it, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, I, I keep saying this. That's but, okay, it is. Uh, Fine. <laughs> so uh, when Roberts retired in 1945, yeah. uh, when he retired, uh, Frankfurter asked, they were colleagues on the court, yeah. Frankfurter had come to sort of like Roberts for, or say he liked Roberts, uh, Roberts, you know, an affable guy wasn't going to, you know, uh, you know, turn on Frankfurter. Right. So he, he asked Roberts to write a memorandum about what happened in 1936 and 37. And Roberts apparently writes this memorandum and sends it to Frankfurter. Um, I'll tell you the content of the uh, memorandum in a moment. Frankfurter then donates his papers to the Library of Congress. Right. Um, the papers dealing with the court packing period, which includes this Roberts memorandum, uh, disappear. <laughs> uh, they're stolen. Uh, wow. uh, by a researcher. I think many people have an idea of who that is, but it's never been pinned down. The person who's suggested denies it entirely. Okay. Uh, but they're, they're, they, so, uh, and then there's this article saying, well, maybe the, the, the uh, memorandum never really existed. I, I think it's clear that it did exist. It, it, just, it just got stolen with this, this other stuff. Um, okay, what does the memorandum say? Uh, uh, Frankfurter publishes the memorandum when Roberts, in a tribute to Roberts, when Roberts passes away in 1953 or something like that. Right. The memorandum says, and this is clear, we now know it's absolutely right, that Roberts changed his vote in like on December 8th, 1936. The court packing plan was announced on, I want to say, 
February 7th, mm-hmm. maybe it's early January 1937. Months later. Roberts had, in fact, voted in the changed way before the court packing plan was announced. That's true. There's no question about that. Um, the opinion, uh, the formal vote, uh, wasn't taken until two days after huh. the court packing plan was announced. But that was because Harlan Stone was deathly ill in December. He almost died. He had dysentery. Right. He almost died. He just, uh, but everybody knew once he recovered how he was going to vote. Right. So the outcome was clear in December. Uh, that formal vote was, in fact, after the court packing plan was uh, announced, but had nothing to do with it. But, but um, the idea of court packing was in the air in Washington from 1933 on. Right. Recurrently mentioned. So um, in, in one of the early decisions of the Supreme Court dealing with New Deal policies involved Roosevelt's suspension of uh, uh, payment of debts in gold. Contracts that said, we'll pay in gold. He said, you can't pay in gold. These gold clause cases were uh, argued before the Supreme Court. It was a very big deal. As they were pending, Roosevelt authorized one of his aides to leak to Arthur Crock of the New York Times the idea that if the case came out badly for the administration, they would do something that might include court packing. Right. Um, and that's published in the, in the New York Times in 1933. Interesting. And and these ideas are just, they're floating around right. for this entire period. Of course, they get intensified in 1936, uh, but they're there in the air. And it's not trivial. Both Roberts and Hughes were, I don't know, vigorous participants in the dinner uh, party culture uh-huh. of what was basically small town elite Washington. Right. Um, and so, you know, they would have been hearing, you know, around the dinner table or in the, you know, right. when the men retreated to smoke their cigars, they would have been hearing about what was going on in politics. So, you know, yes, Roberts changed his vote before the plan was announced, but also the idea was in the air and who knows what right. uh, what uh, uh, what Roberts was thinking? He burned all his papers, so there's no <laughs> material from Roberts whatsoever, right. except this now non-existent memorandum. Um, so my take on reading some of the historical materials is Roosevelt's fiery speech about aged and infirm men on the Supreme Court, and we have to save the Constitution from the court. I think is after the election, but before. December 8th or whatever it is. that I think it's naive to think that these men didn't know what you call being in the air, whether or not they formally knew about the official plan being sent to the Congressional Committee. They knew Roosevelt was really angry and was going to do something. Is that, I assume that's a fair, I mean, they had to know that, right? I mean, that was obvious. Yeah, so, so he, had, he had, I, I think that's clearly right. Yeah. Um, uh, Roosevelt had very carefully and deliberately refrained from talking about the Supreme Court in the 1936 campaign. Right. Uh, what he did was, so there was this group of conservative lawyers called the American Liberty League that had organized 
Um, yeah, Allah. Well, I was going to say Allah, the Federalist Society, but <laughs> they were actually much more dramatically anti-New Deal right. than the Federalist Society is anti-whatever it is it's anti. Right. Um, and they drafted briefs to be used in model briefs to be used in all. He did attack the American Liberty League, uh, and and I think it was most political observers took that to be a surrogate for an attack on the Supreme Court. I should also say, after Schechter, um, he uh, the day after Schechter, I think maybe a couple of days after, he called the White House press into his office. Right. Unusual. He didn't do it all that often, but he did do it occasionally. Um, and he talked to them about the court decision. He started out by saying, I've gotten all these letters from people about how bad things are and how bad the decision was. And he read from these letters. And then he said, um, uh, although this look, uh, he didn't say this, but Schechter looks like a little case, but he says what it does doctrinally is take us back to what he said called the horse and buggy era. Right. And then he looked to his chief aide <laughs> who said to the reporters, although almost everything here is off the record, you can quote that. Interesting. Uh, and they did quote the horse and buggy. So quite deliberate. And the justices, some of them were uh, quite, I don't know what the right word is, offended by. Uh, or, or or taken aback right. by the fact that he was so focused on this doctrinal point, which he understood threatened uh, the New Deal much more broadly. Right. That time period is so interesting, Mark, and I, w I wish we had hours to talk about it. We, we don't. Um, are there any lessons about court packing from that era that we might want to think about, or the threat of court packing, or the non-threat of court packing, or anything we can take from that era, from that era? Yeah. So there are two things. One is it, it just uh, Laura Kalman has a book coming out uh, specifically on the court packing episode. Right. Uh, and she concludes, as I did independently in doing my work, that the failure of court packing was uh, not foreordained. Was it not was what? I'm sorry. Foreordained. Right. It came very close to succeeding. Wow. Um, sort of this... The way to put the story is if Washington had had air conditioning in the summer of 1937, the plan probably would have been adopted. The wow. reason we say it that way is that um, the Senate Majority Leader, Joe Robinson, had been promised a seat on the court if it opened up. And he worked really, really hard. To, he had very good personal relations. He just called in all the chips he had huh. in favor of the court packing plan. And he probably had a majority. And then he, because it was so hot and he'd been working so hard, he had a heart attack and died. Oh, my. <laughs> and then, you know, everybody who had gone along with the plan because of personal ties to Robinson said, OK, I don't I'm not on board anymore. And that's fundamentally why it failed. So it was a very close call. Wow, that's um, not that's that, not the story told by most people. I mean, no, no, um, yeah, yeah, I, you know, maybe over dramatizing right. it, but up until the very end, newspaper reporters were saying 
probably there are the votes to get this through huh. until Robinson died. Right. Um, uh, so that's that's one right uh, one part of the story. Um, another part of the story, and this goes back to the switch in time, is that in historical facts are contested, but I'll give you my best judgment of it. Um, in 19th, summer of 36, so after the court had issued, you know, these Black Monday decisions against the New Deal, Hughes visited Roberts and Roberts's Roberts was a gentleman farmer. He had a farm in Pennsylvania. He Hughes would stop in at Roberts's farm pretty much every year over the summer to spend time with him as Hughes was driving up to his summer place in Maine. Right. In 36, they spent a an, an especially long time with each other. Uh, and people tend to think that Hughes talked with Roberts about, you know, where the court ought to go right now in the face of this crisis. Right. Uh, and then Hughes, uh, Roberts is interviewed by Harlan Fisk Stone's biographer. I think it is maybe Hughes's biographer, but I think it's Stone's biographer. And the biographer asks Roberts, what was going on in 36, 37? And Roberts says, it's a really wonderful set of notes. Robert says, I actually, I can't remember. What was, <laughs> I, you know, I can't explain why I changed my position. Right. But he says, Hughes was a very powerful personality. <laughs> and, and he also has this famous quote saying, and, and he knows he's not as smart as Hughes. Hughes was really smart. Robert says, I'm just an ordinary lawyer. Hughes was really in a different class. So he probably sort of overpowered me with his reasoning. Interesting. Uh, and that's why, you know, things changed the way they right. did. Um, it's, it's not a real explanation, but... No, it's uh, interesting. It's not yeah. specific, but it does sort of provide some hints about what was going on in right. people's minds. Any Anything we can take from that whole episode for today? Not that court packings are real things, it's not, but... but it, Right. So, so the the I think the main takeaway is the the you call it Supreme Court myths. Yeah. The myth that the Port Carcac packing plan was doomed from the beginning. Right. It's just wrong. Um, it, it failed. Right. Uh, and there is a lesson in its failure. You know, Roosevelt had very large majorities. Right. Uh, and even he couldn't uh, get it through. But um, it's not, in some sense, a precedent establishing that right changing the court size right because of political considerations is out of bounds of political reality right i i, so I that, that's what i think the takeaway now is. And, and even i mean what makes me sad about all that just as someone who wants the court to change dramatically in various structural ways is but and even if I mean, there was a time period in our history from 1789 to 19, I mean, to 1860, where we changed the number all the time anyway, for political reasons. There's a lot, I mean, if originalists really care about this, they would, they would, they don't, but they would know that, that as an original matter, that number was left out of the Constitution, and Congress has changed it many, many times for political purposes. And this wouldn't be any different if they did it now from all the times they did it before. 
Well, so I, I would qualify that. Okay. Every time, almost every time, well, I think this right. Every time they did it, uh, when there were evident political reasons for doing it, right. they offered, proponents offered a thin patina of right. good government justifications. Right. Uh, the court's workload has increased. The court's workload has decreased. Right. Uh, uh, we have a new circuit that we have to uh, supply. Now, you know, those were covers for what were actually political reasons. Roosevelt saw that. And he said, well, you know, these guys are old. We just want to, you know, help them out. Right. New, you know, help them with a bunch of new people right. who would distribute the work for them. Uh, everybody knew that was a fake. But right. uh, one of the things that is... I think different now is that uh, almost no one is even pretending to offer that patina of good government justification. It's I am. Just that, well, <laughs> good government, of course, out of balance. I mean, yeah. yeah, and that's, yes. uh, uh, but it's not that there's sort of technocratic reasons right, right. for improving right. the court's operation. Right. Um, although my, my favorite one, I, I have seen some people say, well, look, uh, uh, there are now 13 circuit courts. Uh, it used yes. to be that there was one justice for each circuit. Yes. So why don't we go back to that rule? There have 13 yes. justices, one for each. But only circuit. progressives are saying that right now. <laughs> right, of course, and, and it's uh, you know, right. nobody right. would take that seriously. Well, Mark, this book sounds fascinating. Um, I know it's long, um, but it's fascinating, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to read it. Um, and congratulations on finishing it. I know it was a long project for you. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left. I, I have some lightning round questions for you, if you don't mind. Uh, okay. Uh, and, and feel free to answer or not answer, obviously. You mentioned the Federalist Society, so we hadn't talked about this, but I do want to ask you a question. If tomorrow they called you, the Fer and maybe they do, I don't know, the Federalist Society, and said, we want you to be a major prominent speaker at our national convention at some panel on the Hughes Court or on packing the court or on is law politics or anything else. Would you go? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, uh, that's that. So, I, once again, it's complicated. Okay. So, first of all, um, I take I I haven't publicly said this, but uh, I have acted in the following way for several years. Uh, I would do things for the Harvard Federalist right. Society, right? Event uh, because they're they were of my course. students. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't do things for the national office, although it took me a while to um, reach that position, partly because of these pure personal stories, the long time, I think his title was executive director of the Federalist Society, had been very kind to my conservative younger daughter when she was starting <laughs> out as a freelance writer. And so I you know, yeah. personal ties matter. Yeah. And I would, I, for a while, I was accepting things yeah. at the national conventions, uh, mostly because of my ties uh, to him. But, I, you know, that's now a long time ago. And I think uh, just to be as uh, blunt about it as, as I think is appropriate, I think the Federalist Society bears a fair amount of responsibility for Donald Trump. I agree with that. Not just 
it's the, the Bud Gorsuch defense right. just doesn't work right. for me. Right. And so for me, uh, going, you know, going to a Federalist Society event is like going to a Republican Party convention. Right. Um, and I wouldn't do it. Right. Uh, or making a speech that I did. I go just, you know, right. to, right. to an anthropologist, but right. I wouldn't speak right. at, at that. I think it's a I think it's a hard question. Um, what I've done over the last three years, and and I've been criticized on Twitter for this by a lot of people, um, but I think it's not necessarily well. So far, I think it's defensible. I could be wrong. Is I, I will accept those, and I've gotten them those invitations. But they used to have a boilerplate thing they used to read that we that you know, we begin, that said basically we don't take positions on public issues and we don't support people from public office. And what I've said is if you, you if I'm going to show up and you're asking me to talk or debate somebody, either don't read that or if you're going to read it, then you have to immediately go to me and I'm going to say that's not true. It's just not true. Um, now let's talk about the dormant commerce clause or whatever we're going to talk about. Um, that's kind of the deal with the devil I've made <laughs> on this thing. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's not unreasonable. And, and, you know, there are the people who say, you know, uh, we need to combat the echo chamber where people yes. only hear yes. you know, yes. things they agree with. And right. I, I just think that it's, uh, uh, things have gotten so Out bad. Of hand. Yeah. I, I just wouldn't be, I wouldn't be comfortable doing it. I'm conflicted by the, what I perceive to be, I'll just say it, the, the evil of the leadership. And evil is the word I'm, I feel comfortable using. Um, whereas my, my students and the students of the schools who want to hear about my books, or whatever, I don't, they're not, innocent victims isn't the right word, but they didn't do that. And I, and I think there are a lot of federal society lawyers, and I know students who aren't Trump supporters, who wouldn't have supported Trump and thought it was terrible. So I'm, I try to distinguish between the leadership and the rank and file that may be getting harder and harder as time goes on. But I, I, I think there is something there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I think that I certainly at the student level, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if, if, if Biden called you tomorrow and said, all right, I'm really thinking about putting pressure on the court. I mean, he would, he'll, we, you and I know he won't do this probably. But if they really do completely reverse Roe and Casey, I don't think they're going to. But if they do, or they might actually, I think that that might spurn Biden on. But anyway, if he had your ear, tell me the strategy to get structural change done. What would you say? Yeah. So, so, so for a variety of reasons, I think the only politically plausible, yeah. and it's not terribly plausible, the only politically plausible path is expanding the court size. Right. Uh, there are lots of other things rattling around that I call bells and whistles plans, but politicians don't vote for things that are really complicated. Right. Um, they they go for things that are clean, simple. They can explain and defend if they have to to their constituents. Expanding the court size is the second easiest thing. The easiest thing is term limits for the justices. Right. But that, for a variety of reasons, can't be won't have immediate effect. Again, there are bells and whistles ways of doing it, uh, but. Um, I, I think the bells and whistles way might well be held unconstitutional by these folks anyway. Right. Expanding the court size is uh, right. a, a pretty much the only way, only way to go. So that's what I'd say, you know, uh, and propose adding four justices to the court. If we had 55 Dems in the Senate, you think it'd be possible? 
I think so. Yes. Yeah. I think, okay. you know, in, in the event of uh, what the Democrats would regard as decisions equivalent to the crisis of 36 right. and 37. Okay. All right. One last question that I asked for selfish reasons. Um, on my podcast, I have to mention Judge Posner once a podcast. It's just kind of a rule. Um, and he and I used to fight about an issue. And, and, and I've also had this debate with Sandy Levinson. Both Levinson and Posner agree and disagree with me when I say that I think the Supreme Court is, not, is different in kind than any other court in the land in a significant way because of the psychology of knowing that you're effectively unreviewable. Just what that does to a human psyche. Posner would say to me all the time, but 99% of my cases don't go, 99.5, don't go to the Supreme Court. So I have the final say with two other judges, or one other judge, in those cases. And I would say, yeah, but that 5% of the cases everybody cares about, <laughs> and the cases you care about. And Sandy says the state Supreme Court judges act very similarly to the Supreme Court justices in terms of their kind of disregard of prior positive law, which is my whole theory about the court, which said they don't care about prior positive law and never have in any real sense of that word. Um, so I do think the Supreme Court is a different in kind institution in a substantial way. Both of those great legal minds disagree. I've never asked you this question. Where do you come out on that? I know it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, so so mostly I'm on your side. Uh, the okay. state Supreme Court judges is a, a different and tricky question because yeah. they have different sources to rely on that is state right. constitutional law. Right. Um, uh, and so... Uh, one another component of Kennedy's argument, I, actually, I supplement Kennedy's argument about legal reasoning, uh, is uh, talent. Right. Um, you know, Posner, <clears throat> Posner, he's not the absolute best at legal reasoning, but he's really good at it. Right. <laughs> you know, he can figure out right. how to get around the constraints of precedent right. uh, and do what he wants to do. Right. Most judges aren't like that. Right. They feel, your turn, psychologically yeah. constrained by by the precedents they have. Now, again, the really smart ones, even on lower courts, can work their way around it. But the, the average judge is just average. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, yes, I think they do feel constrained in ways that the Supreme Court justices um, feel, feel less constrained. Yes. Uh, um, they know they're final. They do have this sense that they have to grapple with the doctrine. The best of them know that they can do it. Uh, and so they will go ahead and then, you know, sometimes decisions won't write, but sometimes, and sometimes they just leap over the barriers. But sometimes they say, you know, here's here's how I can manipulate the doctrine to get to where I want to go. And there's nothing formally wrong with their manipulation. Right. You know, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> you might not do it that way, but right. it's, they don't, they're not breaking any rules. Well, Mark, my, my theory about the court is both you and I would do it that way if we had life tenure, unreviewable power, and we cared. Oh, uh, uh, that way meaning reaching the result. Yes, <laughs> yes, reach. yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you really cared about something, 
you know, I go back to Kagan not recusing herself in the Affordable Care Act case, which she clearly needed to do under any possible interpretation of the rules, Justice Kagan needed to recuse herself. And, but she, I think, made the right decision in retrospect, I didn't think so at the time, that 30 million Americans, turned out the voting didn't turn out the way we thought, but 30 million Americans getting health insurance is more important than the technical rules of recusal. <laughs> and I guess she's probably right about that, I guess, at the end of the day. You, 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 well, I'm not sure about the particular example, yeah, but yeah, she yeah. was my dean, so yeah, I, you know, yeah. had to, it's like, you know, talking about Justice Marshall. Right, sort of right, right. Constraints. Right. <laughs> so. Anyway, well, Mark, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I want to emphasize to people how much you've influenced my career, which is a tremendous amount. You know that. Um, and I don't know if I was a legal realist before I started reading your work. I had the, I had the hint of it at the Department of Justice, what I saw. But really, when I, when I read Red, White, and Blue, I think, for the first time, is when I really, this is one of your books, I, I really got enveloped in it. And so thank you for giving that gift to me, because it's... It served me well, and thank you for doing this. And everybody should read this book. Um, let me say it again, The Hughes Court, From Progressivism to Pluralism, 1930 to 1941. I think it has a lot that could be applicable to today's world. Thanks very much. This was fun. Thank, thanks, Mark. <laughs>